This is Heather Vescent reading The Snow Leopard by Peter Mathewson. Chapter 1. In late September of 1973, I set out with G.S. on a journey to the Crystal Mountain, walking west under Annapura and north along the Kelly Gadenki River, then west and north again around the Dalagiri Peaks and across the Kenjuroba 250 miles or more to the land of Dopo on the Tibetan Plateau. G.S. is the zoologist George Schaller. I knew him first in 1969 in the Serengeti Plain of East Africa, where he was working on his celebrated study of the lion. When I saw him next in New York City in the spring of 1972, he had started a survey of wild sheep and goats and their near relatives of the goat antelopes. He wondered if I might like to join him in the following year on an expedition to northwest Nepal near the frontier of Tibet to study the Baral or Himalayan blue sheep. It was his feeling, which he meant to confirm, that this strange sheep of remote ranges was actually less sheep than goat and perhaps quite close to the archetypical ancestor of both. We would go in the autumn to observe the animals in rut, since the eating and sleeping that occupied them throughout the remainder of the year gave almost no clue to the evolution and comparative behavior. Near Shea Gompa Crystal Monastery, where the Buddhist Lama had forbidden people to molest them, the Baral were said to be numerous and easily observed. And where Baral were numerous, there was bound to appear that rarest and most beautiful of the great cats, the snow leopard. G.S. knew of only two Westerners. He was one who had lain eyes on the Himalayan snow leopard in the past 25 years. The hope of glimpsing this near-mythic beast in the snow journey was reason enough for the entire journey. Twelve years before, on a visit to Nepal, I had seen those astonishing snow peaks to the north. To close that distance, to go step by step across the greatest range on earth to somewhere called the Crystal Mountain was a true pilgrimage, a journey of the heart. Since the usurpation of Tibet by the Chinese, the land of Dopo, all but unknown to Westerners even today, was said to be the last enclave of pure Tibetan culture left on earth. And Tibetan culture was the last citadel of all that present-day humanity is longing for, either because it has been lost or not yet been realized, or because it is in danger of disappearing from human sight. The stability of a tradition which has its roots not only in a history in a historical or cultural past, but within the innermost being of man. The Lama of She, the most revered of all the Rinpoches, the precious ones in Dolpu, had remained in seclusion when a scholar of Tibetan religions reached the Crystal Monastery 17 years ago, but surely our own luck would be better. On the way to Nepal, I stopped at Varnasi, the holy city on the Ganges, and visited the Buddhist shrines at Bodhgaya and Sarnath. In those monsoon days of mid-September, the brown heat of India was awesome, and after a few days on the Ganges plain, I was glad to fly north to Kathmandu in the green foothills of the Himalayan wall. That day was clear, and among the temple spires and tiered pagodas, black kites and red veered on the wind. The dry air at 4,000 feet was a great relief from the humidity of India, 
But in the north, the peaks were hidden by thick clouds of the monsoon, and by evening it was raining. I found G.S. at the hotel. We had not met in a year or more. Our last correspondence had been in midsummer, and he was relieved that I had turned up without mishap. For the next two hours, we talked so intensely that I wondered later if there was anything left to speak about in the months ahead. We should have no company but each other, and we do not know each other very well. Of G.S., I had written earlier that he is single-minded, not easy to know, and a stern pragmatist, unable to muster up much grace in the face of unscientific attitudes. He takes a hard-eyed look at almost everything. He was also described as a lean, intent young man, and I find him as lean, as intent as ever. The rains prevailed throughout the last three days in Kathmandu. G.S. was desperate to get underway, not only because he loathes all cities, but because winter comes early to him to the Himalaya, and these rains of the monsoon would bring heavy snow to the high passes between this place and our destination. We later learned that, that the October rains set an all-time record. Months before, he had applied for permission to enter Dolpo, but only now on the final day were permits granted. Last letters were written and sent off. There would be no mail where we were going. All excess gear and clothing were discarded, and travelers' checks exchanged for small rupee notes by the dirty pack, since large bills have no currency among the hill people. With our Sherpa camp assistance, we packed tents and pots and bargained for last-minute supplies in the oriental rumpus of the Asan Bazaar, where in 1961 I had had bought a small bronze Buddha, green with age. My wife and I were to become students of Zen Buddhism, and the green bronze Buddha from Kathmandu was the one I chose for a small altar in Deborah's room in the New York hospital where she died last year of cancer in the winter. In the early morning of September 26th, in a hard rain with a driver, two Sherpas, and all expedition gear, we packed ourselves into the Land Rover that would carry us as far as Pokhara, Two more Sherpas and five Tamang porters were to come next day by bus in time for departure from Pokhara on the 28th. But all arrivals and departures were in doubt. It had rained without relent for 30 hours. In the calamitous weather, the journey was losing all reality, and the warm smile of a pretty tourist at the hotel desk unsettled me. Where did I imagine I was going? Where and why? From Kathmandu, there is a road through Gorka country to Pokhara in the central foothills. Farther west, no roads exist at all. The road, wa- the road winds through steep gorges of the Trisuli River, now in torrent. Dirty white caps filled the rapids, and the brown flood was thickened every little while by thunderous rock slides down the walls of the ravine. Repeatedly, the rocks fell on the road. The driver would wait for the slide to ease, then snake his way through the debris, while all heads peered at the border at the boulders poised overhead. In raining mountains, a group of shrouded figures passed, bearing a corpse, and the sight aroused a dim, restless foreboding. After midday, the rain eased, 
and the Land Rover rode into Pokhara on a shaft of stormlight. Next day, there was humid sun and the shifting southern skies, but to the north, a deep tumult of swirling grays was all that could be seen of the Himalaya. At dusk, white egrets flapped across the sunken clouds, now black with rain. On earth, the dark had come. Then four miles above these mud streets of the lowlands, at some point so high as to seem overhead, a luminous whiteness shone, the light of snows. Glaciers loomed and vanished in the grays, and the sky parted, and the snow cone of Mascha, oh my god, Mashtapuchare glistened like a spire of a higher kingdom. I don't think I've said any of these names aloud ever. In the night, the stars convened, and the vast ghost of Mashapuchare radiated light, although there was no moon. In the shed where we lay down, behind a sort of end, there were mosquitoes. My friend, dreaming, cried out in his sleep. Restless, I went out at daybreak and saw three peaks of Anapura soaring clear of low, soft clouds. This day we would depart for the northwest.